0: here in James chapter 5 so if you're wondering chapter 5 is the last chapter of James and that's where we find ourselves only got a a couple more weeks here in James but here uh, in in James chapter 5 as I was reading the section and thinking about it I I realized um, I was trying to describe how I sensed that James like his attitude when he wrote these verses now I grew up in an era of of uh playing sports in an era when coaches were overly dramatic, okay? Um, That's putting it kind of soft. They They were loud and intense. There's still some coaches that are that way, but I mean screaming, yelling, full-on, full-bore all the time, and Often you would go to a game and you would see all through the game, like the coaches screaming at his players, screaming at the refs, back and forth. Practice fields were sometimes even worse. And when I say like intense going for it, it's the clipboards on the ground, the red face, the veins popping out on the side of the neck. The, the, you know, anybody, some of you guys have been through this. Ladies, maybe, I don't know. But that's the coaches that I was coached under. These guys, and I have been the recipient of some of that, and I've seen some of that, and it's just like these intense kind of tirade moments. Now, I'm not saying that James was completely like that, like off the hook, out of control, but there's a few passages in James, and we've already looked at some of those, where you read it, and if you're just, you know, sitting with your Bible in the morning with a cup of coffee and reading through this passage, it's like, what I, I don't feel the same intensity maybe that, you're gonna actually, that you need to see to really understand these passages. I mean, think about some of what we have seen in the book of James back in chapter four. Remember where he says, he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. How can you say that? Like, be, be wretched, mourn, weep. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Like, right? There's something to this. Or or also in chapter four, how about the, you adulterous people. You can't really say that in a nice way. You can't really be calm. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And this section today that we're gonna look at Aren't you glad you're already already prepping yourself? You're like, oh great, I'm glad I came to church today. I just wanted to be encouraged and strengthened and you're gonna yell at me. No, I won't yell. I'm not a very good yeller anyway, so I wouldn't have made a great coach. But the section that we're gonna look at here today is one of the, the, it's really the last heavy rebuke that James gives in this letter. And it serves as an important word for us to check ourselves with. Because this is the purpose of that coach screaming and yelling. Sometimes it's frustration. Sometimes it's, I'm trying to get through to this player. Uh, But a lot of times it it comes down to to the thing where it's like, this is important. You have to do it this way. Because if you don't do it this way, then that doesn't work. And this doesn't work. And that doesn't work. And our strategy is ruined. Right? So there's usually a purpose behind the screaming, behind the yelling, behind the intensity. And James, he recognizes when he has to hit us with these hard things, it's because he needs us to understand the, 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 the gravity, the weight of what's going on. And we know that we can learn from our teammates, uh, the, the rebukes that they receive that we're standing and watching. We know, oh, I shouldn't do that. <laughs> If I don't want to get yelled at. And, and we don't have to make the same mistakes. So that's where I wanted to set you up here to realize this is what these pa- this passage here today is going to feel like. So let's read it together. James chapter five. We're going to look at verses one through six. Here's what he says. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. How do you say that nice, right? Your riches have rotted You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person and he does not resist you. Okay, pretty heavy section here. Pretty heavy section. Now, if you were here with us last week, this really picks up on the same theme, the same kind of train of thought that James had uh, here in this little section. Because last week we talked about the plans of God and the prophets of God. And I told you last week that our prophets and our plans don't always line up with God's prophets and God's plans. He has a different way of doing things, a different way of seeing things. And that's what we, we learned. We learned that we can get off track when we make our plans apart from God. And if we pursue those plans and those prophets that are ours apart from him, we can end up in a very bad place in our lives. But what we see here today is not only are God's prophets different than ours, but how we acquire profits are to be different than the way the world around us does so. And here's what we have to remember. And we talked, uh, again, we talked about this a little bit last week, but we have to remember the Bible teaches us that our relationship with God is to be our first priority in life. It really is. The Bible teaches us that, hey, if you want to follow God he has to truly be at the top of everything. He can't be second. He can't just kind of, you give a nod to God and say, yeah, God, family, country. No, what he says is, if you really want to follow me, it's got to be there. And what do you see throughout the Bible? You see a constant battle of human beings taking God off the throne and putting something else up there. You go through the Old Testament and time and time again, they, they, they build these idols the high places of worship, and then they tear them down. And then they build them back up again and they tear them down again. It's the, the battle that's always going on. But what we're taught, we have to have, uh, that first priority has to be our relationship with God. And, and like I also said last week, we have chosen this relationship with God. We have chosen that servant and master relationship. We have chosen to submit ourselves to him as Lord and master. And that relationship then impacts everything else, including what we talked about here in this passage, including our money and how we use it. Now I realize this, anytime a pastor says money, some people bristle a little bit like, oh boy, here it comes. Well, guess what? In five years as a church, I have never done a topical message on money. Never. And there's lots of people here that have been here every, every Sunday for five years. They can tell you that's true. we talked about different topical things. We've talked about alcohol. We've talked about sexuality, prayer, parenting, baptism, lots of other topics. But never specifically finances. Now, you might say, oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, but at the same time, that's not something I should be bragging about. <laughs> because if you've read the Bible, what you find is God has a lot to say about finances. And there's a lot about money that we can learn from the Bible. So I actually kind of say that to my shame because I realize, ah, this is an area that maybe I have, have neglected and, and I need to, to deal with. God gave very clear instructions to his people regarding money in the Old Testament. Jesus had a lot to say about money. There are examples of, of incorrect and correct ways of using money in the early church in the New Testament. And it's not a topic that we should neglect. Now, I don't think that I've, for, for in my defense this is a side note but in my defense I don't think I've purposefully avoided it it's just we haven't come across it in a way that, that we needed to deal with it and honestly in the very beginning our church was founded with um, several mature Christian people who understood giving financially and they've supported this church financially from day one and thank you you know who you are in that and so you know it, it may have felt like early on that it was preaching to the choir but as we all know Sometimes the choir needs to be reminded of what the Bible teaches. Um, and And all that, that side note there, to say, this summer, I'm thinking about doing a series on key spiritual practices, and in that series, I, I want to include financial giving in that. And at that point, we're going to do a full deep dive into what does the Bible actually say about about money and ties and offerings and all that. But for today, we want to focus on the passage in front of us, which is specifically about the danger of accumulating wealth at all costs. Okay, that's what James is addressing. So we're going to talk about money today, but that's the part that we need to talk about. We're not going to use this as a jumping off point to talk about everything about all finances. This is about the danger of accumulating wealth at all costs. And I've entitled the message, treacherous treasures, because pastors like alliteration. Now, the problem that James addresses, and this is the first thing that I want you to see as you start studying this. The problem that he addresses is not the fact that the people were rich. Sometimes people look at this and the first thing they say is, it says, come now, you rich. You know, howl and weep for the miseries coming upon you. You're like, whoa, whoa, this is like, he's he's anti-rich, nobody can be rich. That's not what he's talking about. He doesn't tell them to weep and howl because they're rich. The miseries that are coming upon them are coming because of the sinful ways that they have acquired and hoarded their wealth. That's what he's addressing here. And and as you go through and get a full view of what the Bible says about wealth, you find that God is not anti-wealth. He's not against the rich, but he gives very clear warnings of how dangerous money can be for humans. And Jesus himself knew our tendencies and he warned us of this danger. In Luke 12, 15, it says this, and he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Why would Jesus warn us of that? Because he knows That's a danger for us. And he tells us it's not about how much you can acquire. It's not true, the the bumper sticker that says, the one who dies with the most, most toys wins. That's not the way it works. He says, take care and be on guard against it. Because what we find as you live life very long is that money has a way of consuming us. And those that James describes here had crossed several lines and were guilty of sin. What's the sin that we see here? Well, in verse 4, it says that they, they fraudulently kept back wages. Well, what does that mean? Um, you know, this was a, an agrarian society, a lot of farms and farmers and fields. And so for a typical laborer, a, a day wage worker, they would show up at a field the master of the field who owned the field would say here's the jobs that I've got to do today this is where I want to send you this is what I want you to do here's the price for working for the day they go out they do the work they come back at the end of the day and get paid that day all right so when he says they're fraudulently keeping back wages what's happening well probably what was happening is some of these guys were saying oh well you didn't do quite the way I wanted it to so I know I told you I'd give you this much but actually I'm just going to give you this much I'm going to keep back a little for myself. I didn't like your attitude. I didn't like the way you were dressed. You know, I saw that you left something back there. Whatever. And of course, in this society, it's, it was vast difference between the rich and the poor. It's not like there was a regulation where you, you know, call the labor union and say, this guy's cheating us. No, sadly, the poor just got squashed. And so the, there was nothing that they could do about it. They just have to say, oh, well, all right. I've got to do what I've got to do. That day's over. It's just my word against their word. Okay, so they were doing that. In verse 5, he says that they were self-indulgent. What's that mean? Well, they're chasing after excess while others were suffering a lack for their basic needs. So he said, this is sinful. You've got this idea that you can just waste and live luxuriously and just pile it on while somebody right over here doesn't even have their their basic needs met. And with these laborers, you have to understand, guys, there weren't banks and savings accounts or any of the, you know, nest egg for a rainy day kind of funds with these people. The way it worked, it was literally hand to mouth. When I work today, then I get money to feed my family tonight. And if I don't get what I need for today, we don't eat tonight. That's, what's, that's the, the sort of, of industry that was happening there. And in verse six, it says, and they condemned and murdered others. Now, probably not literally, because that was illegal in this time, uh, even then. That's not what he's describing. But what he's saying is, from a financial standpoint, you're killing these people. You're holding back these wages and they can't even feed their family. Their livelihood is at stake here. And this is what you're doing, okay? And like all sins, these sins have consequences, And James describes a few of the consequences. In verse one, he says, miseries are coming for you. In verse three, he says, your flesh will be eaten by fire. Ooh, that doesn't sound good. Verse five, your fattened hearts will be slaughtered. So instead of these treasures that they were piling up and holding, instead of them uh, being a symbol of their success, because that's what we do, they would be evidence of their guilt before God. And James says, this is not the way it is supposed to be. Now, we need to pause here for a minute and remember that James is writing to Christians. I've told you that over and over through this letter because the things that you see and the things that you read, it's very easy for you to say, oh yeah, those dirty, rotten, you know, non-believers, whatever, They don't, you know, they're treating people this way. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to believers. And it's believers that were guilty here. They had chosen to follow Jesus, but were still committing serious sins. And I think that should be eye-opening to us. Because what you can do here is you can read this and say, well, that's for the rich people. I can just move on. I can skip that paragraph altogether. I don't fall into that category. Or you can say, well, he's obviously talking about, you know, somebody who's, whose sins haven't been covered by the blood of Jesus. Okay, but no, we we need to pay attention here. He's writing to Christians. And just like our ancient relatives that we see here, we often forget about how serious God is about sin. We're so used to sin that we can become numb to the weight of it, but we have to wake up. What does the Bible say about sin? The wages of sin is death. That's it. There's no other explanation on it. He doesn't have a whole other paragraph. And this is what I mean by death. No, he's like, it just leads to death. Sin leads to death. And yes, the blood of Jesus can and will cover our sins, but that's not a reason for you to go on sinning. Listen to the way Paul describes it in Romans chapter six, verses 16 to 18. He says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, Yes, God saved us by grace and he called us to righteousness, all right? You heard the gospel message if you're a Christian here today. At some point, someplace, somewhere in your life or maybe it was years of hearing little bits and pieces till it finally sunk in, you have heard that Jesus came to die for your sins, to take your sins, uh, to take them as far as the east is from the west. They don't connect, right? It's, they're gone. They're gone forever and he did it by his grace, freely gave us that freedom from our sins. That is true, 100% true. And in that, you will be saved, he says, for all eternity, for those who put their belief and faith and trust in him as their savior. There's no question, that's it. It's by grace that we've been saved so that no one would boast, all right? That is all true. Our sins are forgiven, And we're called to obey. Yes, your sins are taken care of, but you're still supposed to live a life that's pursuing God and following him as your savior. So that changes how you live. And not only that, he gives us his Holy Spirit to help change us because we can't even change ourselves. Jesus gives us some insight into how this works here in Luke chapter 12. And I want you to pay attention to this because this may be a little surprising to some of you here today. Luke chapter 12, verse 42 to 48, it says, And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Now, listen, I want to set you up here because sometimes when we read the parts that we've heard of the Bible in the past, we've heard that story, we kind of zone out. But I want you to picture what's going on here, what he's describing. What he says is there's this wealthy master. He's got a household, all the servants, all the people that are there. He takes one of his servants and he calls him in and says, hey, I want you, I'm going to go away for a little while. And I want you to be the one that's responsible to get the food to the whole household. So all of the, the kitchen and all the food that everybody's going to need every day, you're the one responsible for making sure that they're going to get what they need. that's a pretty big job. And some of these estates, there have been dozens, hundreds of people that needed food through this one servant, all right? So that's what he says. He says, I'm gonna set you over the household. You're gonna give them the portion of food at the proper time. Verse 43, it says, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions, not just the food. He's gonna expand what he's doing. But if that servant says to himself, Hmm, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Now this is interesting. This is one of those those passages of scripture that kind of bothered me for a long time. Because it's one of those passages, here's what you have to remember. We're talking about the master of the house, Okay, that's God. That's easy. I can figure that one out. And then we're talking about his servant, a member of his household. you're like, okay, that's a Christian, right? Mm, I think so. It's a Christian. You're part of the household of God. You've been given a job to do. Okay, I'm supposed to do this job. But then another one of those servants, who's also a member of the household, doesn't do the job and starts living wild in excess, instead of passing out the food to everybody like he should, he's hoarding it for his, his own, he's getting drunk on the, the wine supposed to be passed out to the whole tribe, all this kind of stuff. He's taking advantage of what he's been given. And what happens to that servant? Well, he's, he's part of the household, he's a Christian, so all of his sins are forgiven. Yes, but what's he still say? He still says that when the master comes, and he's gonna come at a time that you don't know, When the master comes, if he finds that this person has not done what they should have done, it says he's going to cut him in pieces. I don't literally mean he's going to chop his head off or anything, but he's going to rip him. (laughs) He's going to tear him apart. Like, what were you doing? I gave you a job to do. What are you thinking? And it says he's going to get a severe beating. But look what it goes on and says. It's he's gonna, the one who's gonna do that, he's it doesn't say he's gonna, he's going to go to hell. It doesn't say that he's gonna be kicked out of the house, but he is gonna be put over with the other unfaithful servants. All right? We are servants of our master. He's called us to be faithful to his commands, yet we still have the freedom to choose whether or not we're gonna obey him. That's how Christians sin. If you ever wondered, you're like, wait a minute, maybe I'm not a Christian because I prayed the prayer, I did the thing, and I I guess I'm not sinning anymore. And then you sin, you're like, oh no, did I pray the wrong prayer? Did I not do what I was supposed to? I thought I was a Christian. I thought I wouldn't sin anymore. No, you're a Christian. You just chose not to obey. And you're doing something that's not what you're supposed to do. And just like the servant who disobeyed in Jesus' story, those who reject their master's directives will receive a punishment for that. I know this is getting scary here, but listen. Jesus describes it as a severe beating. The death of Jesus on the cross shields Christians from eternal punishment in hell. Okay, it does that. We're gonna celebrate that in communion today. But listen close, guys. Our actions will still be accounted for our actions will still be accounted for. Don't believe me, believe the Bible. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. That's Jesus as we're gonna see. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Nobody else can go to the cross. Nobody else can take away the sins of the world. Jesus and Jesus alone. All right? Now, verse 12 if anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day, that's judgment day, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And listen, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you see what it's describing here? He says the foundation, salvation, heaven, it's, it's done. Jesus said it is finished and he meant it. It's covered, you're good. But then we're still here. And as we're still here as Christians, we begin living our lives. We begin doing the work that God calls us to do. We begin building on that foundation of Jesus Christ. And he says, you have options. You can go and, and go for super duper building materials, gold, silver, precious stones, Or you can just build something out of a good, modest house. Use wood. Or you can be the type that goes in the backwoods somewhere and slaps up a little shack with some hay and straw. But he says, but know this. On the last day, at the end of all things, you're going to be held accountable. God is going to look at the works that you've done on this earth and there's fire involved. I don't think we're going to get scorched like James is threatening the people here. But what's going to happen is he's going to burn our works, so to speak. And you know what? If you had a building built out of gold and silver and precious stones, what happens when a rock goes through a fire? It's a rock at the end of the fire. But what happens with a bunch of hay that's thrown into a fire? There's nothing left. And that's what he's saying here. He says, listen, that person will still be saved, but the reward that they could have had, the reward will be eaten up, burned up, lost. Now, I know what you might be thinking with that. You might just say, well, hey, just at least get me in the door. Even if it's a back door, a side door, as long as I made it into heaven, it's all good, right? Maybe it doesn't really matter. I put my trust in him, just get me there. Well, that's fine, but remember this. Jesus, who had more insight than we have, encourage us to aim for the treasures of heaven. I don't know what all those treasures are like. I don't know what that even means entirely. But when Jesus says, you're gonna want this, I believe, I don't know what it is, but I'm gonna want it. And that's what Jesus says about when he talks about the treasures of heaven. In Matthew 6, 19 to 21, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. And this is what James is is vamping off of in this passage. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then on verse 24, he says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So you've got to understand, this is where Jesus brings this back to, back to our pocketbooks, back to money. He says, there's going to be this battle within you of figuring out in this world, where do I put my treasure? Where do I store up my storehouse? Is it here or is it there? There. And he says, you've got to make sure that you've got this on the right path because otherwise you're going to be left with nothing. It's going to be stolen. It's going to be burned up. It's going to be taken away. And that's what had happened with the people that James wrote to here. They had stashed away prophets for themselves by taking advantage of those that they had power over. And the Bible condemns actions against the poor. In fact, it calls for generosity to them. I'm going to blast through five verses here for you. Um, four of them from Proverbs, one from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 15:11 says for there will never cease to be poor in the land. All right? It's just the way it is. No matter what we hope for, there's always going to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Proverbs 14:31 Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Proverbs 19:17 Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Twenty two sixteen. whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth, which is exactly what those people are doing, or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. It may not be poverty in this life, but it's gonna be poverty somewhere. Proverbs 28, 27, whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes, the look away, will get many a curse. Now, like I said before, I, I understand when we read a passage like this, we say, but yeah, but, but I'm, I'm not rich that's gotta be for the people at the top of the top of the top of the heap, right? I don't pay anybody. I don't have employees. And so I can't be shorting them. That's not me. And that may all be relative. We won't get into that right now. But the lesson that we have to pay attention to here is that what we treasure becomes an issue of our heart. And money can be an idol if we have a ton of it or if we have none of it. And everywhere in between. Money can be an idol when you don't have any at all. Money can be an idol if you've got a ton. Money can't sin. It has no soul. But those with souls often attach themselves to it. And that attachment is sin. Why? Because what did, what did God say way back in the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. And when you take the idol of riches and wealth and acquiring this thing and put it on top, it's an idol. It's before God. And an attachment to money breaks our relationship with God by becoming the idol we worship. Money doesn't have a mind of its own, but it can steal your heart. And we have to be careful of that. Money has no power, but it can be a false sense of security. And here's, how do we finish this today? Remember, guys... When the Bible beats you up a little bit, like Coach James did here today, remember that it is actually for our own good. The reason he raises his voice in this case is because he's sounding an alarm. And he wants to do that for us here today. How should you process this? How should you think about this? You've got to take inventory of your own heart. You've got to say, where really is my heart? What is really at the top of my heart? Is God really um, at, the, at the peak there? Or do I have this idol that is, is in, in a place that it doesn't belong? Jesus came to bring us freedom and abundant life. He came to set captives free from the chains of idolatry and addiction. We are no longer slaves, but here's what you've got to recognize. Idols are gonna to continue to knock on the doors of your hearts for the rest of your lives. It's just the way they work. Don't let money in this life steal your rewards in eternity. Now, as we've gone through this entire letter of James, a verse at a time, I've told you all along, it's a book on practical faith. And so I try to give you some practical things that James pulls out um, for us. So how do we safeguard ourselves from falling into the same trap that these believers that James addressed fell into? So I'm just gonna give you four simple ones. These are obviously not um, the only ways to do this, but here's just a way that I think I thought about this as I processed through it. Number one, make sure that you're not acquiring wealth in a fraudulent way. Take a look at how you get your money and what you do. If you're running drugs from Colombia, that's probably not the best path. <laughs> not a good career choice. It may pay well, but it's probably doing some damage on the way all right so make sure that you're not acquiring wealth in a fraudulent way and if you are repent and change that's what we do when we recognize sins in our hearts we repent and we change number two establish honest financial accountability with another believer okay now if you're married here that might be your spouse where you periodically, you may be the one that does all of the finances, but where periodically, the two of you sit down and you take a look. Hey, where are we spending our money? How are we spending our money? What are we spending our money on? Is this a problem for us? But it's important that you have some accountability there with another believer. Um, it, it may be a Christian friend or family member. I do say a Christian uh, with accountability with that because you might say, well, I've told my financial advisor that this is what I need to do. Look, he's a financial advisor. He's got an issue, okay? <laughs> um, most likely. Not all, not all. But here's why I say believer because here's the thing. What God calls us to do with our money, a lot of times somebody who's in the world will look at what you do with your money as a believer and be like, oh, you got a problem. What kind of cult are you part of here? You give this to the church? You gave that to the person that you knew at your work that needed help? You do, you do what with your money? A tithe, what do you mean 10%? What, what are you talking about, you know? So it's, it's hard to even have that conversation with somebody who's not a believer. So that's why I say it's, it's important to have that accountability with another, another believer. Third, keep self-indulgence in check. I think it's important that we always take a regular inventory of our finances and our hearts toward finances because what we, ha- what we find is that we slip down that path. We get to the spot. I mean, everybody needs a new guitar, right? No, you don't. You already have too many. So what what happens, though, is we start seeing these little spots, these little places in our hearts. We're like, do I really need that? Do I need another Starbucks? Add up your Starbucks bills. People have done that before, and it's terrifying. Do I really need another, you name it, pair of shoes, shirt, coat, whatever, candle. I don't know. What is it that you're into? Keep your self-indulgence in check and pay attention if your heart gets to that spot where it's like more. Ooh, that felt good. I liked buying that. I could use another one of those. Oh, we don't have any, we've got space in this corner of the house for that. Ooh, I could do this. Keep an eye on that. And then finally, the last way to safeguard ourselves from falling into this trap, invest in the kingdom. Find ways to invest your money in a way that pays heavenly dividends. That's one of the best ways of breaking the hold that money has on your heart is simply by giving it, by giving it away. Because that's not our natural inclination. Our natural inclination is more, more, more. Instead, find ways to invest. All right, well, let's pray here this morning. God, we do thank you again for your word. And I know, Lord, that this is uh, not exactly a warm and fuzzy message to hear today, but Lord, we want to to have the hard conversations, and we want to be serious about where we put our hearts, and we want to be serious about putting you at the throne of our hearts, not in the top five, not in the top ten, but number one, truly before all things. And God, we trust you because as Jesus told us, you you know what we need and you care for us and you will provide for us. And that's very hard for us sometimes to believe and to trust. So Lord, I just pray that you would make us healthy in the way that we use our finances. God, that you would teach us what that means and what that looks like. And Lord, if there are any here today that um, are, are, maybe they're convicted by your word here today, not by what I said, but what your word has said, and by what your Holy Spirit is doing in their hearts. And maybe this is an area that has become an idol, or at least is uh, wrestling for the top spot. Lord, I pray that today you would allow them to have the courage to put you where you belong. Break the stranglehold on our lives that money sometimes can have. At the same time, Lord, we do ask that you would provide for us, that you would give us all that we need and allow us to trust you for that in whatever ways that it is that that you're calling us to. And Lord, I pray that you would bless the finances of our church, that you would bless the finances of the people that are part of this church. And when we are in places of need, that you would lay it on our hearts to be able to bless one another and care for one another, that we would be a generous people, a people that know how to give because we know how to walk with you. So Lord, I just pray that you would do all that you wanna do here today in our hearts and in our minds and that you would allow us to grow in this area of finances. We thank you for this time in the word. We thank you for your love for us. And we thank you for Jesus Christ who carried the weight of our sin On the cross. Amen.